Annas. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. I don't know about you, but I find it's interesting that we even get the address here in the text. It's on Straight Street. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision of a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. And let's just go on and read just a few more verses there. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Back in 1885, there was a young man, an aspiring poet by the name of Francis Thompson, who went to London in order to make his mark. Um, he believed that he had a talent and a gift, and he wanted to write books of poetry. He wrote hundreds of poems, and he would submit them to various publishers, and each and every time he was rejected. He spent what little money he did have uh, and eventually fell into a very bad lifestyle. He ended up doing a number of menial tasks in the worst parts of London and then eventually fell into an opium den. And he would have died there had it not been for a couple named Wilfred and Alice Meynell. Uh, they had managed to come across a couple of his poems and it just so happened that they were the publisher of a, a, not a particularly great magazine, but a magazine that had a somewhat wide readership among the common people of Britain. It was called Merry England. And they found a number of his poems, and they thought that the poems were brilliant. And so they set out to find this young man, Francis Thompson, and when they discovered him, as I said, he was wasting away in an opium den, close to death. And so they rescued him. And they took him to a hospice that was being run by the Franciscan friars. And it was there that he came to know Jesus Christ. It was there that he had a conversion experience. And Francis Thompson would eventually die as a result of his lifestyle. He eventually came out of it, but his health was permanently damaged. And he would die at the age of 48, uh, which is very poignant to me because I'm 47. And um, so it's just a very touching story. But before he died, he wrote a poem that has become quite famous. Uh, it had a profound impact on G.K. Chesterton, 
Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, all of them considered it to be one of the greatest poems ever written, at least at the end of the 19th century. The poem was entitled, The Hound of Heaven, and it has this stanza in it. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthian ways of my own mind. And in the mist of tears, I hid from him. That was the story of his own conversion, you see. He realized that there was someone who had been pursuing him his entire life. But he had been fleeing from him. And he describes this person as a hound baying at him, pursuing him, running him down, and him feeling as though there was no way to escape. And he thought that this hound, this hound of heaven as he described him, was pursuing him in order to destroy him. And there in that Franciscan friary he discovered that the hound of heaven was God himself who was pursuing him and was going to run him down, but not to destroy him but to save him. When I think of that poem, The Hound of Heaven, I think that is the story of this man, Saul of Tarsus. That's exactly what Saul had been doing for the greater part of his life until that Hound of Heaven, who had been pursuing him, finally ran him down one day on the road to Damascus. Now, this story of the conversion of the Apostle Paul is, to say the least, one of the most significant events, not only in the Bible or in the New Testament, but really in all of history. In fact, you could go so far as to say, and indeed many people have, that next to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, there is no event in the New Testament or in the history of the world that is as significant as this one, the conversion of the Apostle Paul. It is one of the pillars of the Christian faith. In fact, as we read through the book of Acts, you will discover that it is a story that is repeated not once, not twice, but three times. Now, this is just a little bit of uh, interesting trivia for you when you read through the scriptures. If you encounter a story that is told more than once, that means it's very significant. And there are some stories that are told not once, but twice. It is rare that you will come across any story, particularly in the New Testament, that is told not once, not twice, but three times, which is telling us it is an extremely important event. In fact, in the 18th century, and of course, remember, the 18th century was the age of reason. This was uh, the Enlightenment era. People came out of the Enlightenment, and there was, uh, in the minds of many people, a skepticism about the Christian faith. Uh, people wanted to believe that only those things that were rational, only those things that could be proven by science and by reason. Many of our founding fathers, as you know, were, were deists. They believed in a God, but they didn't believe in the supernatural God. Thomas Jefferson, as you probably know, uh, edited the Bible, took it upon himself. Uh, in, when he was president of the United States, interestingly enough, he spent a night in a room uh, as president of the United States with glue, or their version of it in those days, and scissors, and basically chopped apart the New Testament, deleting all of those parts that he regarded as irrational. Guess what went? Everything miraculous. So rather than coming away with a nice big volume like that, 
you read through Thomas Jefferson's Jefferson Bible and you come across with a book that's about the size of Sports Illustrated. He just got rid of all those parts that he regarded as irrational. Thomas Jefferson was a great man, a brilliant mind. Uh, there was a time back in the um, 1960s when John F. Kennedy was hosting the Nobel Prize winners at the White House. And as he stood up to give his speech in the presence of all of these great minds, he said, there has not been a gathering of intellectual genius like this in the White House since Thomas Jefferson dined alone. <laughs> Jefferson was a brilliant man, but he wasn't a Christian. He was a deist because he thought so much of the Christian faith was just irrational. Jesus was a great moral exemplar, absolutely, but he certainly wasn't the savior of the world. He certainly didn't open the eyes of the blind or raise people from the dead or himself rise from the dead. That was irrational. Well, there were two famous lawyers about this time in history living in England. Uh, their names were Lord Littleton and Gilbert West, and they were skeptics. Now, of course, in England, you had a state religion, a state church, a parliament. So you had to be a member of the established church in order to be a member of parliament. Uh, the sovereign was the supreme governor of the Church of England. And so there were some people in that age that really had a hard time with all of this. There was a Christian culture. But growing up, as they did in that enlightenment environment, they wanted to dispense with so much of this. And so there were a number of people who went out in an effort to try and disprove Christian the Christian faith. And two of these people were this, these two men, Lord Littleton and Gilbert West. They were famous attorneys, lawyers, barristers in their day. And being rationalist thinkers, they were determined to get rid of the Christian faith in England, to disprove the claims of Christianity. Now, that's a big task. How are they going to do it? They felt that the Christian faith was basically built on two great pillars. The whole thing was established on these two great events, that if you could disprove one or both of them, then the whole thing would come down like a house of cards. And those two pillars in the minds of these two great lawyers in 18th century England were the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the conversion of the Apostle Paul. If they could show, they believed, that either of these events did not happen the way that the New Testament claimed, then the whole of Christianity would come crashing down. And so they met one night uh, in one of the colleges at Oxford, and they made a promise to each other that they would go out and tackle these two great pillars. George Littleton, the first Baron Littleton, decided that he would go out and tackle the whole question of the conversion of the Apostle Paul. Gilbert West would go out and tackle the whole issue of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, they recognized that it was going to take them some time to do this. So they gave each other a year to do all of the research that was necessary. They were both wealthy, propertied men, so they had the resources to do this. And they agreed that in one year's time, they would meet back there, I think at Oriel College, Oxford, and they would share their findings with each other and then very eventually publish them, and that would be the end of the Christian faith. They would leave their mark on 18th century English society. So they did. And they went off, and they studied, and they did their research. And a year later, they came back together again. 
Gilbert West came back with great anxiety because in studying all of the events surrounding the resurrection of Jesus Christ as a lawyer, he had come to the conclusion that the most rational explanation for the Christian faith and for the growth of the Christian church was that Jesus Christ had, in fact, bodily risen from the dead. And he was terrified to share those findings with his friend, who he was absolutely convinced had done his best to destroy the conversion of the Apostle Paul. And when he came back, before Littleton even had a chance to open his mouth, he blurted out, I've got to tell you something. And Littleton said, me first. And what he revealed was that he, in studying the conversion of the Apostle Paul, had come to the conclusion that the only thing that could account for a transformation like the one that took place in the life of Saul of Tarsus was that he, in fact, had had an encounter with the risen Jesus Christ. And those two men who set out to write books that were supposed to destroy the Christian faith eventually published two books. You can still get them on Amazon today. One entitled The Resurrection of Jesus Christ by Gilbert West. The other one, The Conversion of the, the Apostle Paul or St. Paul by George Littleton. Two great pillars of the faith. Uh, it is no exaggeration to say, again, that next to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the conversion of the Apostle Paul is the most significant event in history. And it's no exaggeration to say that next to Jesus Christ, no person did more to advance the cause of the Christian gospel than did the Apostle Paul. So I want us to come back now to Acts chapter 9 and take a look at this man, Saul of Tarsus. Who was he? What was he like? How was it that this transformation took place in the life of this man? A man who, it's no exaggeration to say that in the minds of the Jews, was the Heinrich Himmler of his day. Because that's what he was doing. He was out to wipe Christians off the face of the earth. Who was this man who would eventually become the great champion of the Christian faith? Well, we know a great deal, actually, about Paul's life prior to his conversion. Uh, one of the first things that we notice about the Apostle Paul, even before he encountered Jesus Christ, was that he was an extremely well-educated individual. In fact, of all the apostles, he was the most well-educated individual. And when I say he's well-educated, I mean he had education in two areas in particular. For starters, he had a very fine, what we would call secular education. Paul was a man who grew up in the city of Tarsus in what is now modern-day Turkey. It was, as he in his own words put it, no mean city. It was an important city. In fact, it was one of the university centers of the ancient world. You had places like Athens and Ephesus that had great libraries and great universities. Tarsus was younger than those, but it was a great university center. Paul was also a Roman citizen. His parents were Roman citizens. We don't know exactly how they became Roman citizens, but they were Roman citizens. And there were all kinds of rights and privileges that went along with that. And all the indicators suggest to us that Paul, while he was living there in Tarsus, in this great university center, as a man who was a Roman citizen, had access to all of that education. 
And one of the reasons we know that is because eventually Paul is going to go to Athens and he's going to debate the great philosophers of the day, the Epicureans and the Stoics at the great debating society there on the Areopagus on Mars Hill. And what is interesting is that Paul is able to hold his own against those great debaters of his age. In fact, he's able to quote Cleanthes and Aratus, some of their own philosophers and poets. Now, let's face it, the Apostle Peter would not have been able to do that. Peter would have said, Cleanthes, who's that? Who's, who's Aratus? But the Apostle Paul knew. Which indicates to us that he had a very fine secular education. Interestingly enough, when you think about the two people, and again, Jesus aside for a moment, when you think about the two people who in the Bible had the greatest impact, the person who had the greatest impact in the Old Testament and the person who had the greatest impact in the New Testament, who do you think of? What two figures? Well, certainly you think of Moses in the Old Testament, don't you? Who was the instrument by which God delivered his people out of their captivity in Egypt. And when you think of the New Testament, the man who did so much to advance the cause of the Christian gospel, some would even say he was the founder of the Christian faith. That's not true, but that's what some people would claim. He was so influential. When you think about those two individuals, what's interesting to note is that they both had very fine secular educations. And you say, well, Moses had a very fine secular education? Oh, yes, he did. In Hebrews chapter 11, we're told that Moses was raised where? In Pharaoh's household. If you've ever been to Egypt, you've ever seen the pyramids, you know the, the Egyptians were a great people at one point. And Moses was raised in the midst of that, in the royal court with access to all of that, raised as a prince of Egypt. That just goes to show us that an education is a blessing. Uh, it is not something that should be taken for granted. It is not something that should be looked upon as an entitlement. It is a gift and it is an important tool in the Christian's arsenal to go out and make a difference in the world. Now, that's not to say, of course, that God can't use uneducated people. Go back and read through Matthew chapter 4 and the falling of the first four disciples. I preached on it just a couple of weeks ago in church, and one of the points that I made was that you'll notice that not a single one of those first four disciples, you know, none of them, Peter and Andrew, James and John, not a single one of them was a scholar or a philosopher. Nobody had ever been to college or university. Nobody held a degree. They were just common fisher folk from Galilee, weren't they? And yet God used them in an extraordinary way. He used ordinary men to do extraordinary things. So I don't want you to get the impression that God can't use uneducated people. He can and he does. Oftentimes he does. He takes the things that are not to bring to naught the things that are. But he also uses educated people. And the Apostle Paul, in particular, needed to be that kind of a person, equipped in this way, in order to deal with that pre-Christian Greco-Roman culture. And I think that one of the things that is terribly lacking in the church today, in an emotive age in which we are living, where everything is judged on whether it's good or not, whether it's worthy or not, on the basis of how it makes us feel, I think one of the things that we are missing in our age are not just muscular Christians, but Christians who have muscular minds. Where are the C.S. Lewis's today? Where are these great apostles to the skeptics? I've said to you many times before, the old bumper sticker that says, God said it, I believe it, that settles it, is crazy. God may have said it, 
You may believe it, but in a post-Christian, secular culture, that by no means settles it. It's not enough for us. We are no longer living in a Christian context. It is no longer enough for us to know what we believe. We need to know why we believe it. And we need to know how to not only proclaim the Word of God, but indeed to explain the Word of God to people. And that requires an education. Um, There are some Christians who feel that the job of their parent is to protect their children from everything. And I understand that. I've got four children of my own, two in college right now, two who are in Porter Gowd, and of course, deeply concerned about their well-being. We want to protect them. I I, I confess, from time to time, being one of those helicopter parents that sort of hovers over the life of their children. I get that. I understand it. It's a scary world. How many of you think it's a scary world in which your children and grandchildren are growing? Of course it is. But I'm here to tell you the scripture is very clear. We are not on a cruise ship. You become a Christian, you're not signing on to a cruise ship. This is a battleship. That's how the Apostle Paul describes it in Ephesians. It's interesting to note that he talks about families. He talks about husbands and wives and marriage in Ephesians. And and he talks about the relationship within family, children and parents. And isn't it interesting that he's talking about that, which is foundational to society, and the very next verse it is, Now put on the full armor of God. Because that's where the enemy is going to assault, in the family. So we need to be aware of that. So we are in a battle, we are in a war. That is what the Christian life is all about. We are struggling against the forces of darkness. Our struggle, he says, is not against flesh and blood. So what's our job? Our job is to equip our children to go out and be valiant soldiers for Jesus Christ. And part of that is to educate them. They need to be educated. They need to understand. It is a blessing. They need to be equipped. Paul had a very fine secular education, and it would fit him well for the task at hand. But Paul not only had a very fine secular education, he had a very fine religious education. Uh, Keep your finger there in Acts chapter 9 and skip ahead to Acts chapter 22 for just a moment. This is Paul in Jerusalem. It's going to be some time before we get to Acts chapter 22, obviously. But Paul is giving his defense before the people. And here's what he says, beginning in Acts chapter 22, verse 3. He said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia. Well, we've already talked about Tarsus. He said, but brought up in this city, educated. I was was born in Tarsus, but I was brought up here in Jerusalem, and I was educated where? At the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are to this day. Who's Gamaliel? We've already encountered Gamaliel so far in the book of Acts. You recall that when the apostles were arrested in the temple precincts, they were brought before the Sanhedrin. And one of the members of the Jewish ruling body advised that these men not be put to death. Beat them and release them. Because if they are fighting for God, we're going to lose this battle anyway. 
But if they are not of God, they will wither and die. Remember Gamaliel gave that sage advice? It was worldly wisdom, but it was wisdom nevertheless. And we're told that that's exactly what they decided to do. He said Gamaliel was an extraordinary individual. He was one of the foremost rabbis in this day. And the Apostle Paul is telling us that he not only had this very fine secular education, he had the very best religious education. John F. Kennedy was a graduate of Harvard University, and the story goes that he was invited to Yale to receive an honorary degree. And when he stood up to give his address and say thanks, he said, well, I've got everything a man could possibly want, a Harvard education and a Yale degree. That's the Apostle Paul. That's the Apostle Paul. He's got the finest education possible secular and religious. And God is going to use this in a mighty way. We have an obligation as parents to make sure that our children are educated, that they understand the world that they are being brought up in. But it's not just a secular education. It's a religious education. And I would go so far as to say it's not just one or the other. It's both and if they are going to be effective witnesses in our day. So often in Christian environments, particularly in strict Christian environments, we give them the very best religious education, but we don't fit them to go out and make a difference in the world for the sake of Christ. They don't understand the world. They know everything about the Bible. They know nothing about algebra. On the other hand, oftentimes what do we do? We equip people to know everything about the world, but nothing about the scriptures. And so what do we do? We produce very fine Roman citizens but not ambassadors for Jesus Christ. Both of those things are essential, and there must be a balance in that kind of an education. That's what the Apostle Paul had, and he would be an extraordinary instrument in the hands of God as a consequence. Something else about the Apostle Paul at this point, Paul was a patriot, and he was a zealot. Uh, He even says that he was zealous for the traditions of his ancestors. He was proud of his heritage. And that meant that he regarded the Christian movement as more than just a nuisance. It was a genuine threat. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb and say something here that is politically incorrect. Not that that's ever stopped me before, but I think that that's exactly what radical Islam is today. It is not just a nuisance, I think it is a genuine threat. Uh, It is something that is opposed, adamantly opposed, to the American way of life and the American way of thinking and the things that we hold dear. When Paul looked at the Christian faith, he saw this as not just a nuisance. This was something that, at least in his mind, now he was incorrect, it was actually the fulfillment, but in his mind, it was more than just a nuisance. It was undermining the Jewish faith at least as he understood it. It was, and this is not trivial swearing, I promise you, it was a damnable deceit. People were out there being deceived in the minds of Paul. They were claiming that this Jesus Christ, who had been condemned by the Jewish religious leaders and hanged on a tree. What does the Old Testament say? Cursed is a man who is hanged upon a tree. And they're claiming that this Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior, of the Jewish people. And Paul saw that not just as a nuisance, that was something that was tearing people, drawing people away from the truth and leading them down a path to destruction. 
Paul was not lukewarm. <laughs> Isn't that what the scripture says? I would rather you be hot or cold, but if you're lukewarm, I'll what? Spew you out of my mouth. We know how that is. How many of you like hot tea? How many of you like iced tea? How many of you like lukewarm tea? Very few people like lukewarm tea. We have hot coffee. We have iced coffee. But nobody likes lukewarm coffee. Well, Paul was many things prior to his conversion. He was not lukewarm. He was zealous, hot for the traditions of his ancestors. And he believed that as a consequence, violence was justified to stamp out this cancer that he regarded as eating away at the foundations of Judaism. You go back, you can read in Numbers 25 where Paul would have found his justification for that kind of violence. We look at him and we think that he had some things going for him, but in another sense, Paul was terribly confused. And yet all of this, what I want you to understand, all of this was a part of God's preparation. You'll notice in the story that we just read that God speaks to Ananias, and I, I love it. Don't you love poor Ananias? God calls on Ananias, and he has a vision, and he says to Ananias, you need to go into Damascus to a street called Straight, and you're going to find a man there. He's temporarily blinded, and he's praying, and you're going to lay your hands on him so that he may receive his sight. And this is the way I imagine it. And Ananias says, oh, I'm ready, coach. Put me in. What's his name? His name is Saul of Tarsus. Count me out. I don't want to go. No way. I'm not your man. Oh, no, you're my man. Well, then he's not the right person, Lord. I've heard what he's done to people like me. He's, he's come here with authority to arrest us and bring us back to Jerusalem. And what does the Lord say? You go. He is my chosen instrument. My chosen instrument. Now, the question is this. When did God choose the Apostle Paul? We have a tendency to think, well, I must have chosen him there on the road to Damascus. I would argue that everything in Paul's life, everything in Paul's life was a preparation for the work that God was going to fit him for. Let that be an encouragement to you. God can use any circumstance, any situation in your life as a means to hone you and to shape you and to prepare you for the task that he has at hand. Romans 8.28, God can do it. And I think that that's exactly what was happening here with the Apostle Paul. So keep your finger there in Acts 9 and flip back again now to Acts chapter 26 for just a moment. Let me show you what I'm talking about. In Acts chapter 6, the Apostle Paul is being held at Caesarea Maritima. It was the headquarters of the Roman governor when he was not in Jerusalem. And Paul was brought in for trial before the governor and also before the Jewish king, Herod Agrippa, and his wife Bernice. And Paul was permitted to give his defense. Uh, the governor didn't know quite what to do with the Apostle Paul, Paul hadn't broken any Roman laws, and he was a Roman citizen, 
but he had certainly caused dismay and trouble in Jerusalem just by virtue of his very presence. So he was hesitant to release him for fear that there would be more trouble, but on the other hand, he really couldn't hold him because he was a Roman citizen and hadn't broken any Roman law. So the governor found himself in this very difficult predicament. And so what he does is he brings in this Jewish king. You've got to help me out here a little bit. Tell me, I, I don't understand your religion. I don't understand your people. Help me to understand what's going on. And so in Acts chapter 26, we have the Apostle Paul giving another account of his conversion. This is one of the three times that Paul tells his conversion in the book of Acts. So let's just take a look at Acts chapter 26, beginning at verse 1. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you, listen to me patiently. And then what he does is he goes on and he tells the story of his early life. Skip down to verse 12. He says, in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus. Now, this is a story that's familiar to us. With the authority and commission of the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, if you read the story up to that point, it sounds almost word for word what we read back in Acts chapter 9. But here there comes an addition. And in the three times that this story is told, this is the only place where you find the addition. Jesus didn't simply say to him, why are you persecuting me? As Paul tells the story this time, Jesus says something else. Why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. Now, what does that mean? Well, of course, in the ancient world, in an agrarian culture, you're dealing with livestock. And sometimes you would get a stubborn animal. And so shepherds and people who worked with animals would have a sharpened stick. It was called a goad. <laughs> And you would poke the animal to get it moving again. You would goad it on. Now, every now and then, you would get a very stubborn animal that would actually kick against the goad to its own peril. It would damage itself. It would hurt itself. It would wound itself. But sometimes that's what you got, a stubborn animal that did that sort of thing. Well, the Apostle Paul says that he was going along the way, and Jesus says to him, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to what? Kick against the goads, which tells us, and Paul recognizes this years later, that God had been working on him for some time, goading him in the direction that he should go, and Paul was what? Fighting against it. Fighting against God. Have you ever found in your own life that you sometimes fight against God? How many of you have ever fought against God in your own lives? Oh, everybody better put up their hand in here. You know, but everybody's fought against God at one point or another. How's that going for you? Are you winning? That's what Paul was doing. He was fighting against the Lord. He was kicking against the goads. Now you say, well, where had God goaded Paul in the direction that he should go? This is, and you've heard me say this before, this is sanctified speculation on my part. 
But I suspect one of those moments where Saul had been goaded by God and he had kicked against the goads was in Acts chapter 7. So turn back just a couple of chapters to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, verse 54. Now when the crowds heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at Stephen. This is the story of the martyrdom of Stephen, the first Christian martyr, early deacon. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now you're seeing this. Everybody's blood's up. Stephen is being pummeled by stones publicly, killed, murdered. How does he react? Does he fight back? Does he curse his persecutors? Verse 59, and as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice for everyone to hear, including that man Saul, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Somebody else died with similar words upon his lips one day. As he was hanging on a cross outside the city wall, he cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And a Roman centurion sitting there, the base of that cross, looked up and said, Surely this man was the Son of God. I think the Apostle Paul had been kicking against the goads for a long time. And the hound of heaven ran him down on the road to Damascus and said, Enough. We don't know for sure. It would have been a relatively brief period of time relatively brief period of time, because the Christians, were told, had scattered and some had gone as far as Damascus. So that's what we see happening here. God had been preparing Saul all along for the work. Well, of course, God did run him down there on the road to Damascus. It was an extraordinary story. What happens? Well, of course, Paul was going there. Uh, with the intent of bringing these Christians back for trial and execution, deeply concerned about the growth of Christianity, and he encounters Jesus. A bright light flashes about, and we're told he is struck blind. It's a temporary blindness. And, and what's interesting is, and we'll get to this eventually, but you'll discover that in Acts chapter 13, well, just flip ahead for just a moment to Acts chapter 13. All of this just connects in. In Acts chapter 13, this is sometime after Paul's conversion. He is sent off on the first missionary journey. The story goes that the church in Antioch laid their hands on Barnabas and Saul and sent them off. We're told that they left Antioch. They traveled down the coast to a place called Seleucia. They took a boat across to the Isle of Cyprus. And that's where they started, the very first missionary journey. And the story of that takes place in Acts chapter 13, verse 4. Look at what it says. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. 
When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John, this is John Mark, the author of the Gospel of Mark, to assist them. And when they had gone through the whole island, as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul from the faith. So they are on their first missionary journey, and the first thing that they encounter is a false prophet who is trying to pull people away from the faith. But Saul, who is called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil. His name is Elymas, but he was also called Bar-Jesus. Why? Bar-Jesus means son of Jesus. Uh, Jesus was, believe it or not, a common name in the first century, like John today. So his father's name was Jesus. <laughs> so he's being called a son of Jesus. Paul's a play on words. He said, you're not a son of Jesus. I know the real Jesus. You're a son of the devil. You enemy of all that is righteous, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be what? Blind and unable to see for a time. And immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Isn't it interesting that of all the things that Paul could have asked God to do to this man, he asked him to strike him blind. For what? For a time. You know, sometimes God will do that in our lives. Not necessarily strike us blind, but sometimes put us up on the shelf for a little bit. Take us out of circulation for a little bit. And those are times for us to pause and to stop and to think and to pray. Even those times are times of preparation. I think that that is one of the things. Paul must have been a very active kind of person. And what God had to do to him was put him up on the shelf for a little bit. I had an experience like that in my own life. Some years ago, when I was at St. Helena's, um, oh, I guess about maybe four years into my ministry there, I came down with a very serious illness. It's a chronic illness. I still deal with it today. It's under control by medication. But in those days, I came under a very serious, almost died from it. It was a very serious thing. And I was out of circulation in the church for three months. And I remember being so frustrated and angry, but also eventually learning that that was the way that God was going to mold me. See, one of the problems in my life, and I've got many of them, but one of the virtues that I lack is patience. How many of you are patient people? I, I, I am not. And let me tell you something else. I never pray for patience. Because I know God's recipe for getting it. And God realized in my life, I needed that. And so he took me out of circulation for a little while. Put me on the shelf. And I had to learn to be a patient person. To rely less on myself and more on God. And even though I don't want to ever go back and repeat that experience, I would not trade it for anything in the world. I think that's what God was doing here in the life of the Apostle Paul. And of course, what happens is that Ananias comes and he lays his hands on Saul. 
And Saul now has come. I, I think Paul needed that time if for no other reason to realize, oh my gosh, I've gotten it all wrong. All along. I, I, I thought I was doing the wrong. I got it all wrong. Can you imagine what he must have felt like when he heard that voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, Lord. And what he really means is, sir, I hear your voice. I, I can't see you, but I hear your voice. Who are you? Can you imagine how he must have felt at that moment when the words came back, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, at that moment, Saul knew what he deserved. What did he deserve? He needed to be turned into a cinder. That's what he deserved. What did he receive from the Lord? Grace. Not what he deserved, but what he did not deserve. Is it any wonder then that John Newton sings those words? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind. Ah, but now I see. That's what happened in the Apostle Paul's life. He was blinded, taken out of circulation, and he sat there and he considered all of this, and all of a sudden he began to realize what he was, who God is, what he deserved what he had received instead. And a transformation took place in his life. Let me tell you, it's only grace that can transform a life like that. The law cannot do it. I've always said that in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son, the son who went off and squandered his inheritance in loose living, and I don't need to tell you what that's like, he goes off and he squanders his inheritance, and he gets to eating pods that the pigs were feeding on. I mean, can you imagine it for a Jewish audience how bad you had to be down? You, you were at the bottom. And he's longing. And, and he says, the scripture says he came to his senses. If you ask many people, where did that young man have his conversion? They'll say, when he was down there with the pigs. I would argue that's not where he had his conversion. The scripture says he came to his senses. That doesn't mean he had a change of heart. That doesn't mean he had a turning away from sin. It just meant, hey, this stinks, <laughs> literally and physically. I can do better than this. I'm going to go back home and serve as a slave in my father's household. That's better than this. And so the story goes that he heads back. Now, in that environment, to tell your father that you wanted your inheritance in that day before he died was the same thing as saying, I wish you were dead. So he had shamed his father in a shame-based society, and he heads back and he's thinking, I'm going back home. This is going to be much better. But can you imagine as he's getting closer and closer to home, he's probably wondering to himself, "Wow's dad going to receive me? Am I going to get what I deserve? Because what he deserved was what? To be utterly rejected by his father. To be cut out of the will. To be treated as though he were dead. And as he gets closer to home, we're told that his father went out and met him on the road, which tells us that the father had been standing there at the window on the porch day after day, looking, longing, praying for the return of his son who was lost. And his father goes out and meets him on the road and puts a ring on his finger and a cloak about his shoulders, and he kills the fatted calf. And the boy recognizes that he got from his father not what he deserved, but what he did not deserve. And I think that's where the conversion takes place. That's what happened to the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. Has it ever happened to you? 
In order for it to happen, you have to recognize who God is, a holy and righteous God. You have to recognize what you are, a sinner who's been kicking against the goats. But a God who is tracking you down, not for the purpose of destroying you, but for the purpose of saving you. Let's just go back for just a moment. We've got about five minutes left. To Gilbert West and Lord Littleton. Littleton, as he was exploring the life of the Apostle Paul and trying to determine what had happened to Paul, came to the conclusion that if Paul was not converted the way that the book of Acts says he was converted, then there are only one of three options available. One option was that Paul was really an imposter, that he was somebody out there who was intent on deceiving others. He was really not converted. He really didn't have an encounter with Jesus Christ. He was simply out there trying to deceive people. Is that a possibility? Well, you have to ask yourself, and this is what Littleton had to ask himself, if Paul was an imposter, what did he have to gain? Because <laughs> we know the rest of the story. We know the rest of Paul's life, and he didn't gain anything but trouble. He was persecuted. He was pursued from town to town. He was beaten with rods. He was publicly stoned. He was shipwrecked. He was bitten by a snake, which to me is the worst thing of all. I hate snakes. He was imprisoned. He was in jail. He was in danger from foreigners and from his own people. He was hated, despised, rejected, forgotten, and ultimately beheaded. Listen, if he was an imposter, he was a heck of an imposter. What did he have to gain? Littleton concluded he couldn't have been an imposter. Well, then what's the other option? Well, maybe he was what in that day, the 18th century, was called an enthusiast. We'd call them a fanatic today. Maybe he was just out of his mind fanatical. And that's why. He was just fanatical for Christ. But the problem with that, of course, is we not only know what happened to Paul afterward, we know what Paul was like before the conversion experience. He was not enthusiastic for Christ. He had fought against Christ. He'd been a skeptic about Christ. There's nothing in the text, nothing in history that suggests to us that Paul was in any way sympathetic to the Christian cause prior to what happened there on the road to Damascus. So the thought that he was out of his mind, well, it just doesn't make any sense either. Third option, Lord Littleton, was this. Maybe Paul was deceived. You know, there are people who are deceived. There are people that followed Jim Jones down to British Guyana and drank the Kool-Aid. There are people that followed the Branch Davidians. It's possible that people have been deceived. Was Paul one of those? Well, the question is, deceived by whom? <laughs> deceived by whom? By the other apostles? They suffered and died as well. And furthermore, everything that indicates, we know about Paul, indicates to us, as I said, that he was a deep thinker. He was not one of these people readily led astray. Lord Littleton concluded that there's only one explanation for the transformation that took place in the life of this man, and that was there on that road to Damascus, as he was kicking against the goads, the risen Jesus Christ appeared to him. And that made all the difference. And the world, of course, has never been the same.
I want that to be an encouragement to you. Because there are times in our own lives when we wonder, can God ever use us? We look at the world around us and it's going through difficult times. We don't know what to expect. It didn't matter who was elected, the world was in a difficult place. We're seeing this. It's not just an American phenomenon. We're seeing it in Britain and a host of other places. The world is in a difficult place. What did they say? That they've moved the doomsday clock, what? Closer, what, two minutes to midnight or something like that? Well, if it's doomsday for them, it's a day of redemption for us. But that's the world in which we live. But be encouraged. God can use the bleakest of circumstances to produce the greatest of people. The stoning of Stephen, I believe, was one of those events that produced the hero of the faith, the Apostle Paul. I don't know what the world is going to hold for us in the days to come, in the days or the years to come. It may be persecution, like the Apostle Paul endured there on the Ostian Way outside of Rome at the end of his ministry. But what I do know is that the God who notes even the fall of the sparrow from the sky is the same God who is capable of raising people from the dead. He is still on the throne. He is still in control. And there is no limit to what he can do with people, men and women, broken, fallen, sinful people who are kicking against the goads. Once they recognize who he is and who they are and surrender their life to him, can be powerful, powerful instruments for the redemption of the world. When we come back together again next week, we'll take a look at Paul's first preaching. It's very interesting to note that this man who had been fighting so hard against Jesus Christ, immediately, the text says, immediately, once those scales fell from his eyes, began to teach and to prove. There's the education teach and to prove that Jesus was the Christ, the Savior of the world. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise this day for the life and the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Lord, we give you thanks that you did not see a man who was stubborn and difficult and just discard him, but you used all of that as a means of honing him and shaping him and preparing him to be your choice vessel to bring the gospel to the Gentiles and to the ends of the world. Lord, we pray that you would use us. If we're kicking against the goads today, then do whatever you need to do in our lives to bring us to bay. Bring us to our knees, O Lord, even if it means striking us blind that for that period of darkness we might consider our sins and turn to you and be saved. Lord, if you can take Saul of Tarsus and make him Paul the Apostle, you can take our lives as well. So take them, as the old hymn says, take our life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, thank you.